I'm wondering, when you were little, did you ever run away from home? Tell you my running away from home story. I was eight or nine years old. I don't know exactly how long, but I had had it up to here with the tyranny in the Wilson household. I'd had it. There's no freedom here. No freedom. You know, my mom is, is unreasonable. There's no talking to her. And so I, I, I did what I had seen on television. Now, you got to understand, I grew up watching Andy Griffith and shows like that, 60s and 70s. And what I had seen on television was when you run away from home, you go out in the yard and you get a stick and you get a bandana and you put your worldly possessions in that bandana. How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you are like, bandana? What in the world is he talking about? You used to, they used to depict running away from home with a stick and a bandana. These people know what I'm talking about. And I laid out my bandana and I tried to think about what were the essential things that needed to go in my bandana to run away from home. What do you think that is for an eight or nine year old, right? Matchbox cars, gotta have those. And, and I, you know, I'd love to know, I can't remember, I'd love to know what I put in my bandana. So the first, the first challenge was to fit it all in. I went to my dad's sock drawer and got one of his bandanas, laid it out, trying to put it all in there. And then the next challenge was, how do I fold this thing up and affix it, tie it to the stick? Well, I got frustrated and said, enough of that. And I got my gym bag, my little canvas gym bag, and I threw my belongings in there and I went downstairs. Mom was fixing dinner. I think mom knew what was up the whole time. I think, you know, it's one of those deals where underneath, she's just like, got this big grin on her face. And I came down the steps and immediately to my left would have been my mother fixing dinner and the door to go out would have been to my right. And I made a, you know, I'm like trying to make a production. I'm walking real slow. I'm holding my gym bag out so she can see it. And I'm looking over my shoulder. She's not paying any attention to me. This is not working, right? Like I need her to see me. I need her to see her son is getting ready to run away from home. Put my hand on the door. She's still not looking. So I just stand there and wait, you know, for this longest time. And I think eventually she's like, he's never, we're never going to get anywhere if I don't say something. So she looks up and she says, what are you doing? I said, I am running away from home. She fought to keep the smile from her face. And, I, you know, I wanted her to be upset. I wanted her to talk me out of it. I wanted her to get on her knees and say, oh, son, I love you so much. You know, what would I ever do if you ran away from home? I couldn't, I would miss you so much. I didn't get any of that. I, instead, I got a bunch of questions. Well, Brett, what do, you, what do you plan to eat? And do you have, where will you sleep tonight? And do you have blankets? And do you have a pillow? And then... She told me what she was fixing for supper that night. Smart woman. She was fixing lasagna, which is the, my favorite thing that my mother makes. Her lasagna is amazing, and she was fixing lasagna, and I heard that, and inside I'm like, oh, lasagna. And then she told me that I was going to miss dinner, and you know, eventually I'm going to get hungry, and who's going to feed me? And then she told me how cold it was supposed to get in the wee hours of of the morning, the day that was to follow. And in essence, what she was doing is she's saying, hey, Brett, you better rethink this plan. You know, you, you have not thought this through. There's a lot of holes in your, in your getaway plan. And um, you need to rethink the whole running away from home gig, which I did, because when supper came that night, 
that little eight or nine-year-old boy was humbly sitting at the dinner table eating lasagna with the rest of the family because he figured out pretty quick, you could starve to death by running away from home. We all have our running story, right? I mean, even as I tell mine, you're like, I would love to tell my running away story. We've all got that story. Aren't you glad that when you become an adult, you outgrow that? (laughs) You don't outgrow that. You know what? There's still that thing inside of us, that thing that says, I'm going to run. I'm going to run. We, we, We can get talked into running so easily. Today we start another series called Reckless. We're going to look at a story in the Bible. It's one of my favorite. It is it is my favorite. We're going to look at a story that Charles Dickinson said was the the greatest story ever told. It's found in Luke 15 if you have your Bible and want to turn there. You probably know the story as the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. And even as I say that you're like, "Brett, I've heard this story. I don't, you know, we've already heard this story." Had a man walk out today and he said, I've heard that story a thousand times. I've never heard it like that. So hopefully that's your reaction this morning. But I'm just going to tell you, it is a huge mistake to think that this is a story about one son. It's about way more than that. We're going to find that out in the series. In fact, when when Jesus starts the story in Luke chapter 11, or in, in Luke 15, verse 11, he says, there was a man who had two sons. So you have to understand this is a story that Jesus told. Some people think that the story of the prodigal is a story that actually happened. It didn't actually happen. Jesus is telling this story in response to being confronted about something. We'll get to that in just a minute. And so it's my hope that at the end of this series, you understand that the series is more aptly understood when it is entitled The Parable of the Two Lost Sons, because there were two sons and both of them get terribly, terribly lost. Now, one of the questions that we start with is, why did Jesus even tell the story in the first place. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we get the context. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, he's drawn a crowd. He's attractive to people. The Bible tells us that he wasn't physically attractive, but he was attractive. People wanted to be around Jesus. And Luke tells us that the sinners and tax collectors, the phrase that it uses is, were gathering around Jesus. They just like everywhere he looked, there, there they were. Now that word in Greek, gathering around, is a, a present progressive tense verb, which means that this didn't just happen once. This was a common occurrence. This was an ongoing thing. It was happening uh, just about everywhere Jesus went. He's always having people gather around him, and a lot of times it was the worst of the worst. Now I don't know about you, but, but <clears throat> I get convicted when I think about how Jesus was able to attract these people. Now think about it for a minute. How did Jesus, the only perfect person who ever lived, in all of human history, how was he able to attract notoriously imperfect people to him? I'm far from perfect. Um, As a pastor, I ask myself all the time, do people who are far from God, are they attracted to me? Would they want to spend time around me? Do they want to be at Cross Lane? Jesus created an environment where people who were far from God and felt like they were on the outskirts felt comfortable coming to him. You know, it's funny, people who, when I'm around people who don't know me very well and they don't know what I do for a living, and in most cases when I'm around strangers, I'm not advertising that I'm a pastor, okay? You want to watch people just go, that's how you do it. 
If you're ever on an airplane and you don't want to talk to the person who just sat down next to you, when, if they're a talker, you know, when they look at you and say, what do you do for a living? Just say, I'm a pastor. They won't talk to you. They will turn the other way. It's amazing the body language that happens when you tell them you're a pastor. Like, I'm, no. So, but, so, I don't, when I'm around strangers, sometimes I won't tell them. It's, sometimes it's the last thing I want them to know. And what happens is they, they get comfortable with me and eventually their mouth gets a little freer and then eventually you start hearing words. You know what I mean? You start hearing words. Um, they just, it's cuss words and, and things. And, and then it's, I always smile on the inside because I'm like, eventually it's going to come out that I'm a pastor and then it's going to really, because what happens is when they find out I'm a pastor, then they apologize profusely. Right? Like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And then I get a dissertation on their take on religion and God and why it's okay for them to talk that way. And, and you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, dude, whatever. Because um, it's, you know, it's son of a bleep here and it's mother, mother of that. And, and it's like, woo. And so when they do all that and when, they, when we have that conversation, I, I think it's hilarious. And, and generally what I do to make them feel better um, is I'll just take a big deep breath and then I'll drop an F-bomb. You know, I just, you know, I'll just, no. I'm, I'm joking. I really don't take a deep breath. I, <laughs> <laughs> and now you're thinking, does he or doesn't he? I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. And I'm just, I'm comfortable enough to just leave it right there. Let you think about it a little bit. My heart is, my heart is, I want people who are far from God to feel comfortable around me and around us and around our church. I want them to feel comfortable being around Jesus. Um, you, you, you just need to know, I was with the elders Monday night, you, you just need to know that when we make decisions about what's going on at Cross Lane, we don't make decisions based on, well, how would the Christians at Cross Lane like for us to do that? We don't, that's not what our mindset. The mindset is, how can we orient this place and what we do to reach people who are far from God? That's what the heartbeat of this place is. We're, we're, you know, it sounds like a terrible business model, but it's the right business model. We're not trying to keep you happy. You, you kind of come toward the end of the, the conversation the beginning of the conversation is, what about these lost people? What about these people who, who don't feel like they can go to church, they don't feel close to God? What about them? How can we uh, you know, be the, 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 the hands and feet of Jesus, and how can we be ready for them when they, when they come? And, and so we're trying to reach those people. We're trying to make this place a safe, warm, welcoming place. That's why it's really important. You know, as the pastor, I can go up to visitors and shake their hand and smile and try to be warm. But when they find out I'm the pastor, you know what's going through their mind? Well, of course he would shake hands with me. That's why it's important that you do it. That's why it's important that if you see somebody and you don't recognize them or know their name, walk up, shake their hand, and get to know them. Introduce yourself. Let's be warm. Let's be friendly. There could be somebody that's coming in off the street that, you know, they're, one, they're thinking, man, nobody's ever going to accept me. And when you come up and you shake their hand, you're communicating everything to the total opposite of that. You're communicating what Jesus wants you to communicate. Um, if somebody who doesn't know God or is far from God walks in here, I say this all the time, it's the hardest thing in the world 
to walk into a church that you've never been to, the people in there, you don't know them, you don't speak their language, it's, t- it's difficult to penetrate the cliques and the, you know, the, the, the close-knit groups. And I have great respect for anybody who walks into our building for the very first time, especially if they're by themselves. I mean, the guts that it takes, and the very least we can do is be warm and friendly, shake their hand, get to know them, and make sure that they feel comfortable. Cross Lane is not a country club for Christians. It's a hospital for sick people. That's what we are. So back to our story with Jesus. He's welcoming all these sinners around him, and and, and listen to how the religious elite respond to what Jesus is doing. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered. I love that word, muttered. Muttered. I don't like this. I don't like the way this sounds. I don't like that music. I don't like this program. This doesn't do it for me. Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, which really Jesus couldn't have said, I love you, any more plainly than to eat with them. I say this all the time. One of the most intimate things you can do is to eat a meal with somebody. When we, generally, when we eat a meal, we're with people that are very close to us. Maybe once in a while I have a meal with somebody that I don't know very well, but most of the time, when I'm eating with someone, I meet with my son uh, Tanner every Wednesday. We have a sandwich together. It's very intimate. You know, that's, that's what's what eating together is kind of, it's an intimate act. And when Jesus saw the response of the religious people, he was so disgusted that he, he preaches, basically tells three parables in a row, uh, basically to, to kind of put them in their place. And the greatest of the three parables is this one we're going to look at this morning, the parable of the two sons. Uh, so pick it up in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. What we're going to do is I'm going to read this to you in its entirety. Then I'm going to make two points, and, and I'm going to read you a story, and then we're going home, okay? Uh, hopefully you learn something along there. Here we go. Jesus continued. Again, Jesus told this story. This didn't actually happen. And I want you to understand that Jesus puts some things in this story to make it powerful. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, Jesus, uh, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. For a Jew, that's like the worst. There would have been gasps right there. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Skip to verse 18. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's practicing the speech in his head. Haven't we all done that at one time or another? So he got up, verse 20, went to his father, but while he was still a long way off. Now, if you have your Bible open, I would underline that. This is probably one of my favorite uh, lines of Scripture in the whole Bible. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, circle the word ran, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, 
Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. I don't exactly know what kind of dancing you got to be doing that they can hear it, but he heard dancing. (laughs) So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? The older brother became angry. I skipped a verse there. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, All these years I've been serving you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me any, even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Now I want you to look at how he describes his brother. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Now look at what the way the, the father responds. Man, that child is not happy. <laughs> he does not like the story of the parable of the prodigal son. Look how the father responds. He corrects him. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him safe, back safe and sound. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then Jesus leaves this story as a cliffhanger. He really doesn't tell us how it ends. We don't know. We don't know whether the son comes to his senses and accepts his brother and embraces him and, you know, is good with his dad again, or whether he stays distant and bitter. Now, we'll talk about the brother and the dad in the weeks to come. But today, I want to focus on this younger son, and I want us to see how we are a lot like this lost son. All of us know this about our lives. We have all, at some point, run from God. We have all looked up and realized, I am not where I'm supposed to be. I am a long way from home. And we have done stupid things, and we have done scandalous things. And you read this story, and you think, well, what is so scandalous about a son getting his inheritance and running off and squandering it? Well, first of all, you, you, you can't look at this story through American eyes. Okay? You can't have that lens. You've got to put on a first century Middle Eastern lens to see this story. This story was ridiculously scandalous to the people that Jesus was speaking to. to. As Jesus is telling this story, people would have gasped. They would have been disgusted by what Jesus said, especially when they were told that the younger son had asked for his inheritance from his father while his father was still alive. That would have horrified Jesus' audience. Why? Well, there's a Middle Eastern historian. His name is Kenneth Bailey, and he writes this. In all of Middle Eastern literature, aside from this parable, from ancient times to present, there is no case of any son, older or young, asking for his inheritance from a father who is still in good health. What would have happened is that that the way an inheritance usually worked is the way you would think. Father dies, he has some wealth, he leaves it to his family, and the way the breakdown of that is, The older son, in this case, there's two sons. The older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance. 
He would get the birthright. He would, he would then become the patriarch of the family. And oh, by the way, he gets all the responsibility that goes with that. It's his responsibility to provide for the family, to keep the family together, to make decisions for the family. It all fell to him. The second son would have received one-third of the inheritance. But in that culture, no one would ever ask for their inheritance while the father was still alive. To do that was to be incredibly disrespectful, and it was to wish death upon your father, which, you know, just they didn't even, couldn't even imagine. It basically said, I don't love you for who you are. I love you for what you can give to me. Please give it. Give me, give me, give me. Kenneth Bailey spent his entire life in the Middle East as a missionary. He traveled, he, he wrote this, he said, I've traveled all across the Middle East from Morocco to India, from Turkey to Sudan. I've walked into villages in the Middle East and asked the same question all these years to thousands of people. Has anyone ever made such a request to have their inheritance while their father was still alive? And the reply has always been, never. He asked them, could anybody ever ask for an inheritance like this? They said, impossible. Well, why? Why, why couldn't they do that? And the answer came back because they would beat the son for the disrespect and they would disown him and he would never be a part of the family ever again. Sounds horrible. But I would say this. There is a way that you and I can communicate to God that sounds like that. Anytime we're tempted to tell God that what he's trying to tell us to do is none of his business when it comes to you know, our relationships or our sexuality or, or our financial arrangements, things like that. Anytime we are tempted to tell God, stay out of my business, in a way, what we're really saying is, God, I wish you were dead. And I'll be honest, that's exactly where a large portion of our culture is today. They treat God like he's dead. I think a large portion of people would say pretty much, I want a, a life with no rules, no limits, and no restrictions. In our story, the son runs off to a different land because he thought, I will go where there are no rules, no laws, and no restrictions. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'll be able to do whatever I want. Often running for us does not look like a distant land. It sometimes looks like Las Vegas or spring break or a midlife crisis some midlife purchase that doesn't make any sense. Sometimes it looks like an affair. Sometimes it looks like an addiction. It could be any number of things. It could be like so many today that you are here and you just really feel like, I don't really need church. You know, you're doing your own thing. You've got no restrictions, no laws, and no limits. Henry Nouwen was a, a beautiful man. He was brilliant, highly intelligent, um, kind, loving. He's a missionary, he was a professor, he was a philosopher. He said, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. And that is what happens for us many times. We search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. And when we do that, we're prodigal. So, Why do we run? Well, we run because we're like the lost son. And 
we run because we think that God is restricting us. We think that God is holding us back. We think that, that, that all the fun I want to have, I can't have because of the rules and the limitations and the, and the restrictions. That's why I, as an eight or nine-year-old boy, thought about running away from home. If you ever th- did that, you, that's why. You didn't want the rules. You didn't like the laws. You didn't like the restrictions. I, you know, there was something in you crying out, I want to be free. And it sounds awesome until it's not. I've heard Christians say sin is not fun. Oh, I beg to differ. Sure it is. In the moment, sin is a lot of fun. Let's just be honest. If you don't think sin is fun, you're doing it wrong, Okay. Sin can be incredibly fun in the moment. The problem is the bill always comes due. And when the bill comes due, it's always more than you thought it was going to be. I've told this many times, and I will tell it many more in the future because it has impacted me so deeply. I was driving to Clinton one day. I was going through the S-curve there at Lyford and, you know, that little church there on, on the left as you go north just before you get to the curves, there's a little marquee out there and and they put things on their sign. And this particular day, what they had on the sign was this, sin fascinates and then it assassinates. And I thought, man, in such a short sentence, such wisdom. Sin fascinates and then it assassinates. The consequences of sin will put you in the mud feeding the pigs, longing for home. And when we live that kind of life and we do our own thing because it feels fun in the moment, but eventually what happens is we have to deal with the consequences and and that always seems to lead to destruction. You can end up in a place that you never thought you would be. Haven't we all done that? Haven't we all ended up in a place that we never really thought we would be? And, and the words that, is, that you run around in your mind are, God, how did I get here? How did I get here? Some of you might be in the, that place right now, in this moment, and you're saying, you know, I don't even know how I got here. You didn't want any restrictions. You didn't want anybody telling you what to do or how to do it. You didn't want advice from anybody around you, especially people who went to church. We're a lot like this lost son, and we run all the time. So the question for this morning, there's two, two questions that, or I guess two points that I want to make, and they're these. What, what do you learn when you run? What, what can we learn as we, when we run? Number one, God won't always stop you. God won't always stop you when you run. God will let you run. You say, Brett, why wouldn't God stop me? I mean, he loves me. Why wouldn't he stop me? You are, God allows you, you are free to make your own decisions. God will let you run away. Why? Because he loves you. Do you understand that you cannot love unless you are given the choice to accept or reject? I've talked to women who have lived with men or been married to men that controlled everything they did. And, and they, they've told me stories, you know, they were afraid of them, they were intimidated, they, they were controlled. 
Some of these men were abusive, either sexually or verbally or physically. Listen, that's not love. Oh, but he loves me. No, that's, that's not love. God loves you so much. The power of love is the power that someone gives you to accept or reject their love. God wants a real relationship with you. He, he wants a relationship which, which means that you have to choose to accept him. And if you choose not to accept him and instead you want to run, God will let you run. And here's the second thing you need to know. God won't always shield you from the pain of your choices. Many of you are in pain because someone else made a decision and it's blown back on you. And can I just say this morning that if you're here and something, someone else did something, you, you didn't do it, you're innocent, you didn't do anything wrong. They made the decision, they did the stupid thing, and you're paying for it. It blew back on you. It's messed up your world and your life. Can I just tell you I'm sorry? I hate it that that's happened to you. It shouldn't be that way. But let's be honest. Many of us are here today, and, and we would say, no, what happened to me is because I'm an idiot. I made a bad decision. I, I was not wise. And, and we are dealing with the pain of, the, of our choices and the consequences that came from those. And God will not shield you from that pain. In fact, many times God will let you run until you simply cannot run anymore and you're just exhausted. It's, it's, it's exhausting to run from God. And the one thing that you need is to just stop and turn around and turn to God and say, God, I'm tired of doing it my way. All this has done is put me in a pit and made me hungry beyond belief. Are you tired? You tired of running? Here's a question. Why does it take us so long to turn back toward home? Think about the prodigal son. Why did it, why did it take him so long to turn toward home? I mean, this guy's feeding pigs. For a Jew, it does not get any lower than that. And the minute the, the, the audience would have heard Jesus tell this part of the story, they, they, you know, their minds almost spun out of control. They couldn't even imagine. There's a lot of reasons. For you, it might be that you think God is mad at you. It, it, it might be that you think that he won't accept you back. It might be that you think that you've just gone too far in your life. You've gone over the edge. You crossed some line that, that in your mind is like the line. God can't take me back after that. But really, for most of us, the, the one word that keeps us from turning back, I, I think that the word is the word shame. Many of us just feel so much shame. We just aren't sure that we could ever be accepted again by God after the things that we've done. And when Jesus told this story and everybody's listening to him, They, they, they understand why this kid doesn't want to come home. They knew something that we don't know. See, there's something in the Jewish law, the Talmud, they call it. There's something in the Jewish law, there's a ceremony prescribed for this very thing. 
And, and what would happen is a son, if he got his inheritance after his father died, because it was unheard of, you know, nobody even thought of the idea that you'd get it before he died. So in, in, the, the law said that it, if your father dies and then you get an inheritance and you go and squander that inheritance, there was a ceremony that was prescribed in the Talmud. And, and here's what the ceremony is called. It's called the kizeza. Kizeza. Um, if the son ever tried to come back home after shaming the family, the Talmud said that the, <clears throat> the whole village would take a pot, they would fill it with the most disgusting, vile-smelling things they could find. They would fill this pot. It would stink to high heavens. They would rancid, putrid, nasty stuff. Put it in this pot. And they would all go out to the edge of the village as this young person is coming back home and they would meet them at the edge of the village. This guy's thinking, I'm coming home to rejoin the village. And the villagers are saying, no, you're not. They would meet him there. They would, they would talk about how he had shamed his father and his community and his family and the village. And then they would break this pot at his feet and all that nastiness would come out and it, the smell was everywhere. It enveloped everything. And it was symbolic of this is what you've done to us. This is what you've done to your family. This is what you've done to this village. And you are not a part of this village anymore. You go somewhere else. He was cast out. That might be how you feel this morning. You think that you've just done too much. And Brett, there's, just, there's too much shame and there's too much guilt and I'm just sure that there's a pot somewhere with my name on it that's full of the most rotten smell and stuff and people are just ready to break it at my feet. You may be here this morning and this may be your first time in a long time. You need to hear this. If you've been running, God does not see you as broken. He sees you as loved. You're his child. But you will never overcome your brokenness until you come home to his love for you. Philip, Clance, uh, Philip Yancey has written a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? I recommend this to you. It's a great book. He's also written another one called The Jesus I Never Knew. Anything Philip Yancey writes is really pretty good. I want to read you this story. It's two and a half pages long, and then we'll be done, okay? A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts, they ground her a few times and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And, the night, and that night she acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the, uh, the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. 
He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along. She decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him the boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now she has blonde hair and with all the makeup and body piercings she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, this is Detroit. Nobody rats you out in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay for much, and all the money goes to support her habit. But when winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her, her feet, her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspapers. She is piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I'm wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way. It'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on it until it gets to Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she re rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed worn by thousands of tires, and the asphalt steams. 
She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign, posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair and lips the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins, a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats, blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal in a computer-generated banner is, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know, and he interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. It's my favorite story. And it's my favorite story because that's been me. I've been the prodigal son. I didn't run away when I was eight or nine, but when I was 28, I ran from God in a big way. It was such a big way that my mother was so worried about me that she called my pastor, LD. She said, LD, you've got to talk to him. You're, you're the only person I know that could get to him. You've got to talk to him. And LD made contact with me and wanted to meet, and I did not want to talk to LD. See, when you're in that place, you don't want to talk to anybody from the church. You don't want to talk to anybody that's going to tell you anything other than just keep doing what you've been doing, make you feel good about yourself. And LD was not going to do that. And he met with me and talked with me, and I was hard. I was gone. And he, he went and told Mom after the meeting, he said, Rita, I looked him right in the eye. And our Brett's not in there. He's gone. And the good news is this. I turned home. I made the way home through all the shame, through all the guilt, through all the, the humiliation, all the, you know, people in my family that knew that I was just so far from God. And I came home. I never in my wildest dream 
thought I would be here. You can come home. You have not gone too far. You have not done too much. There is nothing that the love and the grace of God cannot overcome. And if you and I need to talk, let's get together and talk. But don't go another day feeding the pigs and thinking to yourself, man, I want to go home. Let's pray. Father, your love is so incredible that it's unbelievable to us. We just have a hard time believing that that can be true. That we cannot sin beyond your ability to forgive us. That our shame and our embarrassment is no match for your grace and your mercy. And Father, I don't know who needs to hear this, but somebody in this room has run and they are feeding pigs in a foreign land and they want desperately to come home. They left because they wanted no limitations and no laws and no rules, only to find that that is a myth. It doesn't exist. And now they want to come home. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to their heart and they would know that you, like the Father in Jesus' story, stands and while the Son is still a long way off, He sees His Son. And He runs. Help them, Father, to run. In the arms of the Father, I pray, Father, that you would speak to whoever needs whatever this story offers them. We pray all this in the